Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Hey, good morning, everybody. I am James Howard, and I'm not on staff here at Revision, but I do have the privilege of volunteering in a number of capacities. So help out with Expedition back in Revision Kids, uh, help up with with the the setup crew here, and I'm on the board. And uh, I think most famously, probably most importantly, we can say I am the two-time Christmas Eve service trombonist here at Revision. Yeah, yeah. Expected even more hoots and hollers, to be honest. That's that's my last trombone joke, don't worry. But I am excited to be here with you this morning. Thank you for joining us. Excited to just uh, dig into God's Word with you today. So, uh, like many of you, these, these past couple years have created some pretty big shifts in my work environment. So, prior to the pandemic, I worked almost exclusively from the office. So, that meant Five days a week, setting the alarm, getting up early, you know, take a shower, brush my teeth, eat breakfast, and, and get ready to drive into the office. It also meant getting dressed up, you know, in the dress shirt and the dress pants and all that good stuff. But then when we shifted to working from home, a lot of the experts were saying, hey, you know, you should really keep that same routine. Just like you are going into the office, you should dress like work during your work hours. And I thought, all right, I can see that from a psychological perspective. So I went ahead and, and gave that a try for about one day before I realized this is ridiculous. Why am I wearing dress pants and dress socks being uncomfortable when nobody can see it? So I switched to jeans for about one day before I realized I can be wearing sweatpants. I can just keep a dress shirt on the floor by my desk, dust that baby off when I got to get on a video call, and, and uh, be much more comfortable. I'm golden, right? And now that I'm going back into the office, not, not a whole lot, but a handful of times a month, putting on those dress clothes is even more uncomfortable than it was before. So by the time I get home, like, I cannot wait to change into something more comfortable. And don't picture the neat and tidy Mr. Rogers thing where I'm changing clothes. No, this is like by the time I'm getting out the car door, the shirt's untucked. By the time I'm in the front door, the belt's off. And, and I'm, the, the best part is taking off those oppressive dress socks, which have been choking my ankles to death for 10 straight hours, right? <laughs> my wife, Diana, would appreciate if the next part of the story was me putting the laundry in the basket, but we're not here to talk about that today, Okay. <laughs> But that's, that's kind of my routine of comfort, and, and I don't know what your routine of comfort is, but I guarantee that you have one. We, are all, we all have this natural tendency to seek comfort, whether that's our clothes, but also like how we spend our time, how we invest in relationships, how we utilize our resources. There is nothing wrong with comfort. It's, it's a beautiful gift from God, but comfort is not our purpose. 
In studying the life and teaching of Jesus, he makes that abundantly clear. In Matthew 20, 26 through 28, Jesus says, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus is calling us into a life of powerful purpose. I love the way Robert Mulholland summarizes it simply in his book, Invitation to a Journey. He says, our purpose is being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. For the sake of others. And I'm convinced that right now, the greatest danger to our impact as followers of Christ is not external. It's not political. I believe the greatest danger to our impact is taking this good gift of comfort and elevating it as the primary pursuit of our lives. Orienting our lives around comfort undermines our impact and our purpose. And think about this. They're they're in direct conflict, right? You know, impact is outwardly focused, whereas comfort is self-focused. We can't face north and south at the same time. We can only orient ourselves in one direction. So it's that outward service of others or inward comfort. Before you tune me out and think, James is just up here trying to make us feel guilty this morning. Ain't nobody got time for that. Like, that, that. That's not it at all. That's not it at all. In fact, I think as we dig into God's word this morning, I hope that you walk out feeling energized, feeling excited about your purpose and the mission that God has for you and the impact that you're going to have as you step into that mission. So we are continuing in our Ordinary Heroes series today. We'll be taking a look at the life of the Apostle Paul. So those of you who have been around the church for a while, there are probably some characteristics that come to mind when you think of Paul. You might think fearless, resilient, authentic, faithful, persuasive, bold, but ordinary? That is probably not like in the the top 100 adjectives that come to mind when we think of Paul. Like This is the, the greatest missionary of all time. Half of the whole New Testament is the letters from Paul. So ordinary? And you are right to say that the impact that Paul made in the world, it was anything but ordinary. But if we look at what Paul has to say about himself, his perspective is very different. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul writes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And this wasn't just false humility or empty self-deprecation on the part of Paul. See, he goes on to say in verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul wanted us to understand that everything that he accomplished was by the grace and the power of God. We see this emphasized time and time again in his ministry. There were multiple times where he was performing miracles and then people started to worship him as a God. We saw this happen in Malta. We saw it happen in Lystra. And I don't know about you guys, but like 
if, if I were Paul in that situation, I would have been really tempted to lean into it for just like 10 minutes, right? Like, let them buy me dinner or something before I broke the news to them. But that's not how he reacted. Paul tore his robes and protested and immediately made sure they understood that he was just an ordinary dude making a massive impact through the extraordinary power of God. So how did he do it? And what can we take from his example? How can we emulate him? Let's dig into the scripture and find out. And we're going to look at a story from Acts 21 that I think flies under the radar a little bit in the the book of Acts and all the crazy stories that happen. But last time I was reading through it, it, it jumped off the page at me, and it's been on my mind ever since. Um, before we jump into Acts 21, I want to kind of set the stage for what's been happening up to this point. So the book of Acts, it starts off with Jesus ascending into heaven and then jumps into the ministry of the early church. So early chapters are primarily focused on Peter and his ministry. And then in Acts 9, we get the dramatic story of Paul's conversion. He went from opposing and persecuting Christians to becoming a believer, and God tasked him with the ministry of proclaiming the good news to the Gentiles all over the world. So Paul, he goes on these massive missionary journeys. He's led by the Spirit going from place to place, region to region. He's proclaiming the good news of Jesus. He's building churches. He's building disciples. And God also performs many miracles through Paul. He's healing sick people, casting out evil spirits, even bringing the dead back to life. But he also undergoes significant persecution. Paul was stoned to the point where people thought he was dead. He was flogged and imprisoned. He was verbally abused. There were lies about his message and his character. There were constant threats against his life. And then in Acts 20, Paul is led by the Spirit to make the trip to Jerusalem. And here's what he says. Acts 20, 22 through 24. And now... Compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Wow. Those are some bold words from Paul there, and, and hold on to that thought because we're going to circle back around to it. Chapter 20 closes out with Paul kind of saying his goodbyes and packing up and getting ready to head to Jerusalem. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to Acts chapter 21. Otherwise, the words will be up here on the screen, and if you don't have a Bible or if you know somebody who needs a Bible, <clears throat> feel free to pick one up from the next steps table after the service. That's what they're there for. So Acts 21.1, after we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Batara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was about to unload its cargo. If there were frequent sailor miles back in the day, Paul is racking those things up, Right. But continuing to verse 4, we sought out the disciples there. We stayed with them for seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. 
And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. And this is interesting, right? Because back in chapter 20, verse 22, Paul said that he was compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. But then we read here in chapter 21, verse 4, it says the believers through the Spirit urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So what's up with that? Like, did the Spirit change his mind? Is Paul just mishearing the Spirit? Is he misinterpreting it? And while that is the, the subject of some scholarly debate, I think the best answer is no, that's, that's not the best conclusion here. And as we continue to dig into this passage, we're going to see how this apparent conflict is really not a contradiction at all. So let's pick it up in verse 7. We continued on our voyage from Tyre. We landed at Ptolemus where we were greeted by the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, time out. Are you serious? Like, I cannot be the only one who has lots of questions and is highly amused by this Agabus dude, right? First of all, the, the, the belt, okay? So I'm not an expert in the clothing of big biblical times, and I'm not sure I want to be because it's more fun to imagine it my way, right? So I'm, I'm picturing Paul with this big belt buckle. He got it on his trip to... Dallas, his missionary journey, goes with his hat and his boots, right? <laughs> and then I have questions about Agabus here, right? Like, how long did this take him? And why did nobody stop him? He must have been some kind of Boy Scout to just rip off Paul's belt and quickly tie these knots around his own hands and his feet. And then Paul's immediate response to this. So Agabus is saying that the owner of this belt is going to be bound, and if I was Paul, I'd have been like, you're darn right, Agabus. The owner of this belt's about to be imprisoned because if you don't give it back to me, it's about to be around your neck. <laughs> like, I can't be walking around in this flowy tunic with no belt. I look sloppy. <laughs> Judging by the context and the response from others, I may have let my imagination run slightly wild there. But what should genuinely strike us about this passage is yet again, we see reference and warning from the Holy Spirit. This isn't Agabus talking on his own. In verse 11, he says, the Holy Spirit says, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt. So let's continue on to verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. So you see his, his closest friends, his traveling companions pleading with him, Paul, don't do it, man. You got to listen to the Spirit. You got to listen to the Spirit. But we see Paul's response. He answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. What an incredible response. And I don't want us to miss this. 
Because Paul saw in that moment that the biggest risk he was facing was not suffering. The biggest risk he was facing was not imprisonment. It was not even death. To Paul, the biggest risk was abandoning his mission for the sake of safety. The biggest risk for Paul was seeking comfort at the expense of his impact. And these warnings that that the Spirit was providing Paul, they weren't providing new information for him, right? Back in Acts chapter 20, he said that he was warned directly from the Spirit that hardship awaited him. This message from the Spirit, it was consistent. It was consistent to Paul, to those believers in Tyre, to Agabus. Paul was working on the same data set from the Holy Spirit, but he drew a vastly different conclusion. Where others saw this warning of hardship as a discouragement, Paul understood it was for the purpose of preparing him for his mission. So what did he do? Verse 14 says, When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. And after this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. This story of Paul as this courageous but ordinary hero, it's, it's 2,000 years old. But I think if we look at any modern-day heroes, we see the same pattern unfold again and again and again. The biggest difference makers, and whether they're the world-famous ones that everybody talks about or somebody who's just made an impact on your life, the biggest difference makers prioritize their impact over their comfort. The only possible exception you could maybe convince me of is that guy in the MyPillow commercials. He kind of does both at the same time, like impact and comfort. But, But seriously, difference makers prioritize their impact over their comfort. So what's this mean for us? How can we go about orienting our lives in a way that prioritize impact over our comfort. I want to give you some some application steps here. So step one, acknowledge that you're called to a purpose greater than yourself. As I said earlier, Jesus makes it clear that following him isn't about just praying a prayer to go to heaven and then, you know, comfortably riding out the rest of your days until you die. No, following Jesus is about action. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The author, Tom Yeakley, summarizes it like this. He says, To follow Christ means we must first deny ourselves. That is, give up all our rights to our own plans, desires, dreams, and hopes for for our lives and let God determine our future. It's an abandonment of self into the loving hands of God. Jesus never promises that following him is going to be easy. (laughs) Quite the contrary, actually. But there is tremendous joy in living out this purpose that God has for us. Maybe you're here today or, or you're listening online and you're not sure about this faith thing. You're not sure about God at all. But let me tell you that Jesus is inviting you into this life of purpose and meaning. So come on board. Like your name is already written on the guest list. You just got to walk into the party. And you have that opportunity 
to live in purpose and meaning in following Jesus. I want to be abundantly clear, though, when I, when I talk about Jesus calling us into lives of impact, because it's not about salvation. It's not about earning God's favor by doing more. There's absolutely nothing that we can do to make God love us more than he already loves us today. It's not about what God needs from us. It's about living into a purpose that God has for us. Interestingly, there's been more and more psychological and neurological research into the the importance of purpose in our lives. They've found that within a year of retirement, there are elevated rates of dissatisfaction, depression, even cognitive decline. And why is that? Many retirees find that a whole lot of their purpose was wrapped up in their work, maybe more than they realized or wanted to admit. If you just retired or you're thinking about retiring, the good news is it's not the case for everybody because they find that retirees actively involved in churches or volunteer activities don't tend to suffer this same fate. And the researchers believe that much of that is due to maintaining that sense of purpose. But really, this scientific data only confirms for us what we already know from listening to the, the words of Paul who listened to the words of Jesus. We are created for purpose. We're created for impact. So step two, find out what your purpose is. And we can keep this one simple because I think sometimes we have a tendency to overcomplicate trying to understand what God's will is for us. We want to start with the biggest, most complicated questions like, where should I work, or who should I marry, or where should I live, or where should I go to school? And I don't want to to minimize the importance of those decisions, but I also don't want those big decisions to draw our attention away from some of the small decisions that will help us live out our purpose. We just got to start with the odd problems, right? The ones that are already in the back of the textbook, the answers are right there for us. So, So what are those answers? What can we clearly identify is God's will for us from his word. How about love your neighbor? Love your neighbor. In the life of Jesus and the apostles, we see this demonstrated. They cared about people's physical well-being by providing healing and food and comfort. They cared about emotional well-being by providing acceptance and belonging. And they cared about spiritual needs by proclaiming the good news of Jesus. But if you're like me, sometimes it can be a little bit overwhelming or you just don't know where to start. So I would encourage you to ask yourself this question. What breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? Whether it's poverty or sickness or justice or loneliness. If it breaks your heart, then there's a need for you to make an impact in that space. Step three, put your faith in God's faithfulness. So looking back at Paul's example, we see him time and time again willingly relinquish his comfort for the sake of impact, but he wasn't doing it just out of his own innate courage. Like it was his faith in God's purpose and his plan that allowed him to do that. Jesus makes an incredible promise in Mark 10, 29 through 30. He said, I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, 
No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me or the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Think about it this way. If you were offered $1,000 tomorrow, if you paid $1,000, or if you paid $100 today, would you, would you take that deal? And you're thinking, James, uh, kind of depends. Like, is this a random email from a Nigerian prince? Because then, heck no. Like, I'm, I'm hanging on to what I have. But maybe if this is a person or a company who is proved to be faithful and reliable, like maybe they have accountability or even legal obligation to pay me back, then yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to multiply my money. But the thing is that decision, it comes down to your faith in the reliability of the source. And Jesus made a promise that our sacrifice will be worth it. So are we going to believe in his faithfulness? That's the beauty, I think, of this calling from God. It's, it's not about intentionally seeking out suffering and living a life of misery. It's about having faith that living into a higher purpose, even if it's hard, is going to lead us to more abundant life, both now and in eternity. Step four, live out your purpose today. It doesn't do any good to agree with this concept intellectually if there's no action. So think about where you're being called to make a difference and write down the steps that you're going to take. We're creatures of habit, like we talked about, and if we're not intentional about taking action, then we fall right back into those same habits. If we don't make commitments, then our convictions will just blow over like a storm cloud and nothing's ever going to change. So I would encourage you, make a decision. What's one step that you can take towards a life of impact? And write it down. And step five. Live out your purpose in community. We are better together. In so many ways, we're better together. Life and faith and mission and impact, it's not meant to be done alone. Being part of community allows us to draw inspiration from others. And it allows us to be an inspiration for others. In his incredible book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer discusses the importance of church community to our mission. He says, the word church, ecclesia in Greek, means those who are called out. It's not a community of comfort, but of calling. I want to go back really quickly to how our passage ended in Acts 21, verses 14 and 15. It said, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. And notice that word, we. Paul's bravery was an inspiration to his friends and his traveling companions to go along with him. Notice also that Paul didn't apologize for this. He didn't say, no, 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 guys, stop it. This is my burden to bear. You don't understand there's going to be suffering. I don't want you to have to go through it. Like, I got this. You don't need to go. He didn't do that, and why not? Because, because of his faith, 
Like this was so obviously the, the right decision, the only decision for him is to take that step of faith. It's like how if somebody says that they're going to join the gym or pursue higher education, like, sorry to hear that. Like, oh, it's going to cost you a lot. It's really going to eat into your entertainment budget not to mention your free time. Like we, we don't say that because we understand that the short-term cost is outweighed by the long-term benefit. So we congratulate them, right? And that's what Paul did. He invited people in to this journey of mission and purpose along with him. So what happens if we ignore our calling? What happens if we choose to make comfort the primary pursuit of our lives? I think there are two main things, and, and the first one is this. If we pursue the comfort of this world, if we play it safe to avoid getting hurt, we miss out on the chance for Jesus to be our source of comfort. We can numb ourselves with Netflix, but at the end of the day, that's all it is, is numbing ourselves. But the comfort of Jesus, it's deep and it's true and it's everlasting and our struggles are an opportunity to experience this beautiful comfort that comes from Jesus. The second thing is obvious. If we ignore our calling, there are people in need that are going to miss out on what we have to offer. And that's really straightforward, but it's really significant. As we wrap up today, I want to share with you the story of a man named Charles Moley. And some of you may be familiar with him from the, the books about his life or the documentary. Um, documentary is just called Moley. I would encourage you to look it up. It's, it's awesome. But Charles Moley, he was born in 1949 in a village in Kenya to a poor family. When he was six years old, he woke up one morning all alone. His family had abandoned him. He was on his own at six years old. So he spent his childhood begging on the streets as an orphan just to survive. In his adolescent years, he was filled with resentment and hatred. He was so depressed, he began to think about ending his life. But fortunately, God intervened. He was invited to church where he heard the good news of Jesus. He heard a message of hope that transformed his life. And carrying this newfound hope in Jesus without a single cent in his pocket, he made a three-day journey to the capital city of Nairobi to look for work. He knocked on doors until he finally found a job cleaning for a wealthy family. And from there, he quickly earned favor in that job, got promoted to a manager role, and was able to start saving money for the first time. He uh, bought a taxi, started a taxi service, and then a fleet of taxis, and then a tire company, and then an insurance company, and a real estate company, and got involved in oil and gas. And pretty quickly, Charles Mully went from orphan to multimillionaire. And he was well-respected, he was powerful, and he was happy. He was raising a family of eight children along with his loving wife with the, the security and the comfort that he had never been able to experience all his life. What a great success story. Like This is the classic example of rags to riches. I think we can all be happy for Charles Mully. But the story doesn't end there. Because after encountering orphans on the streets of Nairobi, Moli felt a call from God that he couldn't ignore. 
He spent hours wrestling and praying for God's direction and then made the decision that he would never do business and work for money again. He was going to sell everything he had and start helping the orphans in the streets. So he just started bringing kids off the street to be part of his family. Day after day after day, he went to the dangerous slums and brought orphans home with him. And these were children who were sick, subject to prostitution, who had fallen into drug use. He just brought them home. Not only providing food and shelter, but providing love and family, becoming their father. People thought he was crazy. Like his friends, his church, even his wife and kids, they were struggling to understand how he was throwing away everything they had, all their comfort, all their stability for a completely chaotic existence. But he kept going and going and going, and God provided miracle after miracle after miracle to be able to provide for these children. I wish we had more time for the details, but I'll skip ahead and share that the Mully Children's Family Organization has now fostered and reintegrated into society well over 10,000 Kenyan orphans. These are orphans from the slums who had a one in five chance of even surviving to five years old. And they've found love in family, in education, and careers. Charles Mully took this story of rags to riches for himself. And he multiplied it by thousands and thousands and thousands because he chose to forsake his own security and comfort for the sake of others, for the sake of his mission. If you think that was easy for him, you'd be wrong. But if you think he wouldn't do it again in a heartbeat, you'd be even more wrong. In words from Molly himself, he said, the moment I said, yes, God, use me, I got the greatest joy in my heart. Will you join me in prayer? God, we just thank you for who you are. Thank you for your incredible love for us, God that you, the creator of the universe, know and love each of us deeply. Thank you that you call us into lives of impact and purpose, that we get to be a part of your story, God. We sang earlier that, that you are the same God, the same God who gave courage to, to Moses and to David and to Mary, the same God who gave Paul courage. God, you, you offer us that same courage. I pray that our faith in you increases so that we would just be able to go out into the world, live lives of mission and impact for the sake of the world and for the sake of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.